Well, there are a number of wisdom statements uh, that people tend to attribute to the Bible. But you'll never find them if you go looking. They're not in there. People think they're the Bible, but they're not. Like this one. God helps those who help themselves. It's not a verse. It's actually from an Aesop's fable. Hercules and the Wagoner. A man's wagon got stuck in the mud. He prayed to Hercules. We don't pray to Hercules, okay? He prayed to Hercules for help. Hercules appeared and said, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. And the moral was given, the gods help those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. All right? How about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible. This phrase originated as an ancient Babylonian proverb and became very popular during the Victorian era and after being revived by Sir Francis Bacon and the revivalist John Wesley. How about this one? This sounds very biblical. Hate the sin, love the sinner. It sounds like a biblical admonition. And you can find the idea in the text, certainly. But it's not in the Bible. It's actually a loose quote of something Mahatma Gandhi said in 1929. Hate the sin and not the sinner. Augustine expressed a similar thought in 424. With love for mankind and hatred of sins. How about this one? Money is the root of all evil. Now some of you go, I know this one, right? Uh, It's a common... It's a common misquote of the Bible, actually. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money is not good or bad. Being wealthy is not a sin. Loving money, or as it's referred to, avarice, is the root of all sorts of evil. When the desire to accumulate wealth is placed above God or above other people, that's a problem. How about a penny saved is a penny earned? Yeah, not in the Bible. Frugality is in the Bible, but this one's Ben Franklin. Although, people even debate if that was him, so I, you know, it's all over the place. To thine own self be true. Well, when, when prompting people to follow their conscience on matters, this phrase is often cited as a biblical recommendation, but it really originates with the Shakespearean tragedy, Hamlet. It's probably the use of that word, thine. You know, where else do we say thine except in the Bible, right? How about one, this one? This too shall pass. This is actually a a misinterpretation of an old English poem. It's funny the things that people will assign to the Bible that are not in the Bible at all. The Bible gets misquoted quite a bit. But maybe more dangerous than being misquoted are the times it's completely misinterpreted and misrepresented. I'm amazed uh, while we live during a time that is just increasingly secular, there are certain verses that are quoted word for word by people who claim no allegiance to God whatsoever. Sadly, in the process of weaponizing a verse for an argumentative advantage, they actually misinterpret or misrepresent God's original intention. Well, topping the list of misrepresented and misinterpreted verses in the Bible are the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you will be judged. As we continue our series today, Seven Deadly Needs, we come to the need to judge. We cannot know what is deadly about judging until we have a proper understanding of what Jesus means when he commands us to abstain from judging. So let me read the whole passage. You can follow on the screen or in your Bible if you want, using the Bible app if you want. Go ahead. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 1 says, Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank, that old two-by-four in your own? 
How can you say to a brother, let me take that speck of sawdust out of your eyes when all the time you have a big old plank hanging out of yours? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is quoted again in in Luke chapter 6 in just a little different way. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now this passage is often pulled out as a club to bludgeon people. A person, often a Christian, makes reference to a sinful behavior on the part of another person or or a pattern in the culture as a whole. They may even, in a very kind and loving way, point out a moral error to a brother or sister in Christ. This statement then, their observation or expression of loving concern, is met with this antagonistic retort. Doesn't your Bible teach not to judge? Doesn't Jesus, Jesus say, judge not? This is a favorite stone thrown by those outside of the church to accuse Christians of hypocrisy. It's also a ploy used by guilt-ridden believers who, in a moment of receiving loving confrontation, try to deflect their shame by shaming the messenger. The part that is so amazing is just how effective this lying can be in silencing the ones pointing out the problem. They go whimpering back to their corner, feeling justly chastised. We really misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. And if we understood it, we would not be so quick to cower. As we already stated, context is everything. We cannot select a word or a phrase or a single verse in the Bible and decide its meaning outside of or apart from the broader context of what the Bible is saying. I mean, think about this. How many statements does a parent make along the way? And and if you just took that particular statement, it could be completely misunderstood. Mom says, for example, don't walk on the rug. So like seven years later, the kid still walks around, all the way around the rug. And, and, and mom's finally like, you have this bizarre habit, this tick. What is this thing? You said not to walk on the rug. Oh, honey, you know, there was milk spilled and I cleaned it and there was a little wet spot. I didn't want you to walk on the rug. She didn't mean for time and eternity, don't walk on the rug. You got to have a little context, right? Uh, Dad says, never leave your bedroom once you're in bed. And then you're laying there as a 10-year-old and you smell smoke and the smoke alarms are going off. And you're laying there, but daddy said, don't get out of bed. Uh, You know, they don't give us all the exception clauses. Obviously, if there's smoke, if there's fire, get out of bed. He didn't mean don't ever, ever, ever get out of bed. Dad says, stay out of the fridge. I don't know about your house, but in my house growing up, I didn't know what the inside of the fridge looked like until I was like 15. We were not allowed in there. It was forbidden, okay? But let's say mom or dad says, don't go in the fridge. Do they mean time and eternity? Or did they mean, hey, it's 4.30, it's about to be dinner, and I know your little nibbly habits, so stay out of the fridge for now. Or maybe there's a surprise in there. Maybe there's a big cake with your name on it, and we want you to be shocked. So, so stay out of the fridge for now. Mom says, stay out of my purse. My mom had that rule too, never go in her purse. But every once in a while she'd say, I need my glasses, would you grab my purse? And I'm like, (laughs) is this a test? (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble. To this day, Kim will ask me to go in her purse, and I'm like, holy of holies, I'm not allowed to go in there. This is like finding the Ark of the Covenant. Leave it shut, don't go in. 
You saw that guy's face melt off when he opened the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want that to happen to me. You can see in each of these cases that context influences meaning. We need to know more in order to know how to properly respond. What is the context of the statement, do not judge, or you will be judged? Well, look a little bit further down in the passage, and we read this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little judgy. You just called someone a wolf, and it wasn't like, you know, a nice toothless one at a, at a, you know, old folks petting zoo or something like that. This is a ferocious wolf. By their fruits, you will recognize them. That sounds a little judgy. You're making a determination, aren't you? Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Same chapter in which he says, judge not or you will be judged. He says, look at the fruit. I mean, is Jesus mixed up? Did he, get, did he lose his line of thing, train of thought after just 20 verses? Oh, my word. I, I didn't mean that. What's going on? How are we to understand judge not in light of these verses? To know if someone is a false prophet, I have to make a judgment. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. That's a judgment statement. In fact, let me throw another bomb out there. That's discrimination. What is Discrimination. You know, uh, our kids have been taught that discrimination is all about racism. It's about prejudice and bias and bigotry. It's about injustice and presidential, not presidential, that word, treatment. (laughs) Ah, A little too much juice today. What's going on? Prejudicial treatment. I'll insert that later in the podcast and we'll wipe out all the mistakes. Most fundamentally, this word means the ability to recognize or understand the difference between two things. That's discriminating. This is different than that. That's what it means to discriminate. Uh, We refer to people having a discriminating palate. What does that mean? Well, this person knows the difference between Godiva chocolate and Nestle's chocolate. They can taste the difference, and there is a difference. They they can taste the difference between gourmet food and junk food. They have a taste for the finer things of life. To discriminate is simply the ability to tell the difference between two things. It is only in more recent times that racial undercurrents have been assigned to the word. Now, this is reality, okay? English changes. Words in English change. We need to understand that. And that's fine. Words can take on different meanings over time. That's not bad. But we need to understand that change in usage can distort the original intent of the word. We're called on, as Christ followers, to discriminate between good and bad, between right and wrong, between righteousness and evil. In the same chapter that Jesus says, do not judge, he says, you need to use good judgment. Both lines are in this. I didn't even have to go to different parts of the Bible. Within 20 verses, we find the same thing. The key to all of this is recognizing that the word judge can mean two different things in the New Testament. And really, it can mean two different things in English as well. Sometimes judge is used to mean judge between things, good or evil. Okay? 
to differentiate, to discriminate, to discern. In this case, we judge between right and wrong, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. This kind of judging, the act of discernment, is not what Jesus is forbidding. In fact, throughout the Bible, we are commanded to discern. Discerning means that we will have to make some judgment calls on what is right and what is wrong, on what is righteous and what is unrighteous, and on what is moral and what is evil. And this is what gets Christians into a lot of hot water in an uber-tolerant and increasingly hostile culture. When a Christian labels something as wrong or evil, they're often pounced upon as being judgmental and out of step with Jesus. This is the result of a culture that no longer understands the difference between, between discernment and condemnation. There's a Bible scholar, his name is F.F. F. Bruce. He writes, judgment is an ambiguous word in Greek and in English. It may mean exercising a proper discernment, or it may mean sitting in judgment on people or even condemning them. And it is the second definition to condemn, that Jesus forbids. He makes this clear in Luke chapter 6. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Jesus is saying the same thing twice. This was a common rabbinical teaching device in the time of Jesus, to say something and then say it again with different words, both meaning the exact same thing. His charge to us is to not condemn people, not to pass final judgment and declare them irretrievably guilty. Can I say this again? Hear it. His charge to us is not to condemn people, not to pass final judgment on them, and declare them irretrievably guilty. Can you see the difference between judging as discernment and judging as condemnation? God wants us to develop good judgment. He wants us to recognize truth and to reject error. He even wants us to call sin what it is. Sin. He also wants us to avoid playing God. It is his place to issue the final verdict. He is the judge. We are not. Like we've seen in, in other lessons in this series, our desire turns deadly when we decide we want to play the role of God in the story. When we decide we're going to take on God's part, that's when trouble begins. And when we decide we are going to condemn somebody as irretrievably guilty, that's when our trouble begins. There's another reason this kind of judgment is so wrong. Jesus says judgment that condemns is absolutely wrong because when we judge someone in a condemning manner, we are declaring that they have no value, that they have no worth, that they do not matter to us and they do not matter to God. Sadly, we tend to do this as a means of elevating ourselves. The more we push others down, the higher our value must be. This is the problem Jesus is addressing. The idea that our worth requires someone else's condemnation. When we condemn other people as wrong, not just about what they believe, but in their core, in their their identity as people, then it's easy to convince ourselves that we don't have to love them. We just don't. We don't have to serve them. We just don't. We don't have to respect them. We just don't. This exclusion and condemnation of others fuels so much of what is broken in our society and in our world today. But Jesus says, not so with you. Not among my people. The Christian is never to condemn, 
never exclude, never see anyone without value and dignity. We cannot ascribe value and dignity to a person and condemn them as, as worthless at the same time. It is just not possible. Is all of this making sense? To judge means two things. On one hand, it means to discern, and on the other hand, it means to play the role of judge and jury, to convict and to condemn. I want to go back to one of our favorite verses around here. Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn how to know what God's will is for you, what is good and pleasing and perfect. How do we know what God wants? Well, by letting God change the way we think. I want to give it to you in a different translation. This is the Phillips translation. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the, plan, that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward his goal of true maturity. This phrase, judge not or you will be judged, is a verse that we as the church have allowed the world to interpret. And we have actually allowed them to squeeze us into the mold of their interpretation. So we find ourselves cowering, holding back, biting our tongues, not pointing out error where error exists because we do not want to be seen as judgmental, as if being judgmental is the highest crime there possibly is. We watch a fellow believer wander wander down a simple path that is leading to destruction, and we hold our tongues. Why? Well, judge not, or you will be judged. Folks, we cannot allow one verse one misinterpreted verse to cause us to exclude what's going on in the rest of the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about this. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is an example of uh, a case in the extreme, okay? This is, this is as bad as it gets. Paul starts by saying, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something even pagans don't do. He says, even the world doesn't go here. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Uh, That's incest, okay? Just in case you didn't know. He says, it is not just that you tolerate it. No, you're proud of it. Paul doesn't mince words. Here's what he says. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. He goes on to talk about the impact this toleration of sin is having on the church. Then these words... When I wrote to you before, I told you not to assume people who indulge in sexual sin. But I was not talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or or people who are greedy, or cheat, or worship idols. You'd have to leave the world in order to avoid people like that. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. And then he says, don't even eat with such people. He finishes by saying, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly my responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but scripture says you must remove the evil person from among you. This passage helps us to interpret what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. It all goes together. You can't just pick your one favorite verse and wave it like a flag and say, here's where I stand. You got to take the whole thing to understand all of what God is saying. Contrast the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 with the modern distortion of the words of Jesus, judge not and you will not be judged. 
Again, this is a a situation in the extreme. What does it teach us? It teaches us that holding back from a loving confrontation with a wayward brother or sister is not an act of love. Did you hear that? Holding back from a loving conversation with a wayward brother or sister is not an act of love. It's not an act of love. It takes great love to help a person see the error of their ways. In fact, I would contend that when we help a person see the error of their ways, we actually love them more than the person who wants to sit in silence. Love these days has been equated with permissiveness. Permissive parenting is not loving parenting. It's an abdication of one's role as parent. Permissiveness is not love. Permissiveness is hateful. God wants us to take an active role in each other's lives. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We are are to challenge each other and, yes, even confront each other when necessary. The key is is, is that we consider how to lovingly correct and not hatefully condemn. There's the difference. Judging is a hateful condemnation to where Jesus is calling on us to be part of loving correction. So how does judging turn deadly? We'll go back to Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? And you know the rest. We have Jesus in this passage just, just having a little bit of fun with these people. He's, he's using a hyperbolic statement. He's, he's, he's saying something that's so absurd that I, I'm convinced that his people were listening to it. They were laughing. And what he teaches us is that the first way judging turns deadly, judging turns deadly when we ignore personal imperfections, when we ignore what's going on in our own lives. It's a funny thing. We often see our faults better and much more clearly in someone else than we do in ourselves. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you'll just pick the flesh off someone else. Oh, they do this, they do that, they do the other thing. And then your friend or your relative will say, well, you kind of do that. What? Not me. It's amazing how we see so well in other people the thing that's going on in ourselves. Every time we feel the urge to go speck picking, we need to stop and look in the mirror. Jesus used this picture purposely. I mean, think of the humor. This guy has a monster two-by-four growing out of his head. And this, I mean, here it is. Like, you know, boom, boom, boom. And this is the guy that's going to say, hey, wait a second, I... I, I little, 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 little speck on your eyelash right there. Are you kidding me? Really? You can't see the log growing out of your head? There's an oak forest coming out of your eyeball. What's going on here? Pay attention. When I see a fault in someone else, it provides me a window for self-examination and potentially necessary course correction. I start by going, not I see your dust, but what's that shadow? (laughs) Oh, it's my plank. Vump we got to look at home first. We need to understand fully what Jesus is saying here too, though. He's not saying wait to pick dust until you've achieved perfection. That's just not what he says at all. I mean, folks, every week you come to hear an imperfect, flawed human talk about the path to godliness. It, that's not, it's not about achieving perfection. He's not saying wait for perfection. He's saying you better know you are not perfect. You better know your own stuff. He's really talking about humility versus pride. We do not pick dust because we are better than others. If we pick dust, 
It is out of love and out of a realistic grasp of our own imperfection. So judging turns deadly when we ignore our personal imperfections. It also turns deadly when we ignore human brokenness. We can choose to see people in one of two ways, rebellious or broken. Now, please do not theologically nitpick with me here, okay? Sin, by definition, is rebellion. I get that. We are rebels against God. I get that. I understand that. But when we as humans choose to see other humans as rebels, that's our, that's our prime label that we use for them, we get hardened. We hardened our hearts toward these victims of sin. We lose hope for each other when all we can see is a rebel. This is part of that condemning thing. If you see, only a, if you see a person only as a rebel, you condemn them. You have no hope for them. You have no hope for their repentance You have no hope for their conversion. You have no hope for their transformation. You have no hope for their future. But here's the thing. As long as the other person is breathing, there's a chance for change. There is always a chance for change. And rather than being the judge who condemns that person, I want want the chance to be part of the hope-filled future that God might have for them. Again, I'm not denying the theological reality of our rebellious state. I just know that when I judge with an eye to condemn, I short-circuit my hope for your recovery. I write you off as dead long before you're dead. We've talked about it before. Every time we look at a person, we look at them through a pair of lenses, glasses with lenses. One lens is dignity and the other is depravity. Both are true of every human being. Every human being is created in the image of God with absolute dignity. And every human being is marred and tainted by sin. And we see every person with both of those lenses. Some of us want to have glasses that only see depravity, depravity. We see everybody as rebel and that's it. Some of us only want dignity and dignity and we want to ignore any dust that might exist in the eye. Jesus would would encourage us to look with dignity and depravity and by the way, to begin with the dignity lens. To begin by saying, I see you as a person created in the image of God who has been marred, tainted, destroyed by sin. And I have hope, I have hope for your recovery. Judging turns deadly when we ignore our own personal imperfections. It turns deadly when we ignore human brokenness. And finally, it turns deadly when we ignore our biblical responsibility. So let me say this simply and sweetly. Our world is not helped by our silence. Our fellow brother or sister in Christ is not helped by our silence. You are not being virtuous when you withhold calling sin, sin. That's not virtue. You can believe it's virtue. It's it's American virtue. It's 2017 American virtue. It's not Jesus' virtue. Jesus' virtue says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And when the salt stops losing its taste, it might as well go out on the street. We have a responsibility in the lives of other people to lovingly help them see the error of the ways. Did you hear the word lovingly? not screaming, condemning, not banners and all this sort of junk. We have a responsibility to help a person to see the error of their ways and to bring them safely home to God. Uh, Truthfully, they may not receive that well. They may not. They may say, you're judging me. They may do that. But 
But if you know, if you know what God wants for them, if you have a handle from God's word what's best for them, it could only be described as hateful to withhold that news from them. How else can you see it? It could only be described as hateful to have the answer and say, I was too afraid of what you might think of me to say anything about it. We've really let the world give us a good squeeze on this one. We sit in silence because we're so afraid that the J word's going to come out. Why are we here? We are here to say, I was a wretched mess and I still am. But there's this guy named Jesus and he stepped into human history and he helped me to see the error of my ways. And he helped me to see that there's a path to God. And he wants the same for you. He wants the same for all of us. We are called to judge to discern between right and wrong, and to say something about it. We are never, ever, ever, ever called to condemn. To say you are irretrievably guilty, you are dead before you are dead. There is always hope. If there is breath in those lungs, there is always hope. And it begins with the way we pray. Do we pray in a way that we believe God can bring other people home? Or we've we erased them from our list because we're just like, even God can't change that one. God can change everything and everyone. And he leaves us here to bring that hope to people. So, let's pray. How mixed up we get, God, on what Jesus meant when he talked how quickly we allow the world to take the words of Jesus and make them say something they don't. Let us not be people who condemn, but who love deeply. And let us be people who love deeply enough to speak the truth in love. Exactly what your word says. Quote straight from the Bible. Give us courage and wisdom and discernment to walk the way you call us to walk in this broken world as broken people, with broken people. In Jesus' name, amen. Our servers are going to come right now and receive the offering. And uh, (laughs) Brian wants to leave, so let's let him talk. (laughs) Two years ago, on this trip, we had 45 people total, 45 people, and we fit into this really neat, like, dorm-style building that was perfect for us. It was a lot of fun. Last year, we had 74 people total, and it was a better trip than I could have ever possibly imagined. This year, I'm like, okay, going to plan for, like, 65. We have a lot of seniors leaving us, going on to do bigger and better things. And my mom 
says, you need to plan for 90. I laughed. I said, no way, absolutely not. We are taking 90 people on the dot. I just need to bust in for a second. So his mother's rather competitive. And so is he. I don't know where I get Every it. time it drops to 89, she recruits another person to get back to 90. Even I'm going for a few days to get to 90. And if you look at the list of sermons, next week is what? The need to keep score. She needs to be here. I hope she you two show up. Go ahead. I cannot describe how like, I'm, I'm shaking because I'm, I'm so excited for what this week has in store for us. But I am also terrified because uh, I don't know if there's enough coffee in the world to keep all of the adults awake uh, for, this, for this trip. I'm so excited. We're going to get a lot of work done. Uh, we had enough ketchup, mustard, and relish donated. Uh, and I can't wait to show you guys next week. As long as everything works out, we hope to have a video ready for you. Uh, again, if it works out, uh, we're going to have a lot of GoPro, a lot of everything going on this week. So please... Even though if you're not coming with, if you're coming with us, uh, please nap this afternoon. We are leaving at 4 p.m., which means we need, you, we need students here between 3.30 and 3.45 at the latest. Um, and we are wheels rolling at 4. So if you're not coming with us, parents, I know like some of you are sending three kids and you're like, hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be your hallelujah if you pray for us, please. The whole week uh, we have... Don, Bob, and John, uh, and myself doing all the teaches this week. Uh, we have all kinds of different crazy games. Uh, Dora, Stephanie, Mark, Ray, um, Rod. We, we have a lot of people going on this trip. I'm going to leave out some adults. But please, if you, if you know somebody that's going on the trip, be praying the whole week. Every, every night. Because, uh, again, there's a lot of fun stuff, but a lot of really terrifying stuff this week. So, please, again, just... Be praying for us, and again, uh, if you see Jim Hagland today, thank him for these awesome t-shirts that he made us. Uh, we, again, this is going to be the biggest and best trip we've ever had. So, without further ado, it's time to go, and I need some help. One, two, let's go. Bye. They're, they're sincerely leaving. That's not just a prop, so... Anyway, uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about with that next week. And um, got some. I, part of what I love about this week is we help kids do something that, that's just unique to the uh, 2017 child. We teach them to work. Very good thing. And we got some great jobs to do. We got some messy. I mean, kids are going to be finding stain behind their ears for the next six weeks. It's fantastic. So anyway. Let me talk about, so, can't, you know, this Green Lake thing is, like, all-consuming. And then there's this mini little break in which, you know, coins are moving, Shelly's moving, all kinds of stuff's going on that week. And then, boom, day camp smacks us. And, uh, again, wow, just what, a, what an amazing, fantastic week that is going to be and has been for us for years. So give me just a couple minutes to talk about this. I, I, I'm trying to think of why, why it is important for your child or a child you know to be at camp. Why is it really just absolutely vital that this happens? And I have three things for you. First of all, I just I love I love the setting of our camp. It's part of what makes us unique. 
When we, when we chose to build here, we didn't choose, you know, a 10-acre piece of farmland that had no trees, no nothing, and you got to wait 30 years for character to grow. We, we chose a piece of land that has a wetland down back and 100-year-old oak trees and nature trails and, and all kinds of cool stuff that doesn't probably happen in your backyard. Uh, it's just, it's an amazing space in order to encounter the beauty of God and do things you wouldn't normally do. And we're going to do some things around here that you wouldn't normally do, including hillbilly water skiing and just all kinds of, there's all kinds of nutty stuff that we're going to be doing that you couldn't do, except that we're here. I still remember a couple of years ago as we were about to build this place, we, um, we had Roger and Janet Swank speak into part of the video that we did. And as they were recording that, they, they were standing out under those oak trees. And Roger and Janet have been a part of the church since the, since the mid-60s, okay? They've been around for a while. They dreamed of these days. And Roger's standing under these oak trees, and he's looking up, and he says, I can't imagine what it's going to be like for us to do camp under this. And now, I mean, Michael Brown and others have carved out this beautiful park out there under the oaks. It's just, it's beautiful. It's a place of real beauty, a place that kids get to encounter something that they don't get to in their subdivision. That's big. Number two, since this time we've started doing camp, guys have been involved. Lots of guys. And, and I love women. Women are fantastic. If not for women, I'm convinced some seasons of the church would have just flatly, it had been over. You know what I mean? But when guys get involved in working with kids, some amazing stuff happens. And we have a bunch of guys involved in this. It, we, live, we live in a culture where kids need more contact with some of these guys. They may not have a dad at home. And they need contact with, with a man who loves God and loves kids and shows them what love looks like. I don't know about you in my household. If a hand went like this from a male, I did that. You know, I ducked. And to, to have a male around that actually treats you with dignity the way Jesus would treat you is huge. That's a huge piece of this camp. And, and I'm not knocking other places, but that's unique to here. We have lots and lots of guys involved. And that's just really, really important. It's really important. I had a third thing. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I hate 54. <laughs> because as soon as you walk out, I'm not kidding. As soon as, you, I, this is what I get for not taking notes. Maybe those two are good enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, yeah. Rattle, 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 rattle. You really want to go. Can you just wait about 10 more minutes? It's the way it works, I promise. I can't remember. But it was really amazing. In fact, it was, it was, it was kind of the closer. It was going to bring it all home. You were going to cry, repent, just as I am. Come kneel. Dang. Oh, well. Anyway, Jesus doesn't want us to talk about that. What he does want us to talk about is the fact that you have some kids in your life that need to come to this thing. And, you know, we can, we can put out signs and we can put it on Facebook and we can do all that stuff. The bottom line is we bust the walls open when, when someone talks to someone and says, your kid has got to come to this camp. We got to do some inviting. We got to do some inviting. You're, we bust the walls out when you say to your grandkid, come stay at my house for the week and go to our camp and just bring them along to this thing. So uh, we got a week of registration and it's done. A week, Okay. We want to get at least 50 more kids involved in this thing. So get to work. Get to work. I've been working. Let's get to work. Let's get more kids involved in this. It's going to be an amazing week. 
God's going to do some incredible things. But he can only do it if they show up. So we got a great start. We've already got more kids than last year. We've got a great start. But more need to come. So Stan, let's pray. I'm, it, I'm not kidding. The second service is going to know what number three was. <laughs> well, God, as our kids venture from this place this week and their leaders to go work, I pray that they would find the glory of God in using their hands to do something great for you. And as we walk through this week and look for people who have children who need to know God, I pray that you will give us the courage to just say, hey, my church has a camp. Maybe your kid would like it. And let them respond to that invitation, we pray. And God, as we walk from this place, help us to know that do not judge does not mean keep your mouth shut. It means use your mouth the right way. It means speak with love the message of Jesus to all. Amen. We'll see you. In the morning when my heart is cold, you're the heat for my weary soul. You're the good in all I know. In the mirror all that I see is your grace looking back at me. I'm not the man that I used to be. Everything comes alive. Everything comes alive.